Hey everybody, it's your old pal Josh for this week's SYSK Selects. I've chosen our 2019 episode, A Brief Overview of Punk Rock. And it's just that. And I have to say, we did a pretty good job for a couple of squares, a couple of uptight weirdos, you know what I mean? So I hope you enjoy this brief overview of punk rock, because we did. Welcome to Stuff You Should Know, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Josh Clark. There's Charles W. Thrashcore. <laughs> I'm already regretting this. There's Chuck Bryan over there. Charles W. Chuck Bryan. Mm-hmm. There's Jerry Jerome Rowland. And uh, like I said, I'm Josh. This is Stuff You Should Know. Hey, ho, let's go. Exactly. Uh, I want to issue a COA off the top here Okay. to fans of punk music. Get ready to be mad at us. <laughs> yeah, please don't beat us up, though. Yeah, here's the thing. Uh, punk is sort of like the hip-hop episode. It's not just music. It's a culture. Sure. It's a movement. And it is so – there are so many tentacles. Alternative tentacles. So many subgenres. So many, like – the more I started getting into it, I was like, why are we even doing this? <laughs> I had the in, same feeling. In a single episode. I had the same feeling. Because right? it can only disappoint. But we're hey, doing it anyway. No, there's a lot of people out there who don't know squat about punk who are going to be like, cool, I'm punk now. I get it. Maybe. And the, the people who are punk now are going to love us for it. Well, I mean, you, you know, there are certainly podcasts, I'm sure, that are dedicated to the history of punk. Right. No, I know. And the thing is, is with a big distinction here between the hip-hop episode and this episode is that the hip-hop episode doesn't beat you up if you show up to their shows <laughs> and you're not wearing the right thing. That's true. Punk's kind of protective of punk, which makes sense because it's pretty punk, mm-hmm. right? Like you kind of, you can't allow for commercialization of punk or else it stops being punk. Yeah. So by definition, it has to be vigilantly defended and protected. Yeah. But the irony of the whole thing is when you do that, you actually strangle it from becoming anything ever and you kind of kill punk, strangling it in the cradle, the end. Yeah, and I, I listen to a lot of music while researching this, and there's just so many things that could possibly fall under the banner of punk, and probably so many real punk fans that will fight you on any of them if you say, like, <laughs> you know, the talking heads were punk, or television was punk. Uh-huh. Not really, but were they new wave? I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the New York Dolls. I was listening to them. Proto-punk. When you listen to them, though, they sound like sort of like dressed up rock and roll, like Rocky Horror Picture Show style. Right, but make no bones about it. The New York Dolls were a direct predecessor of punk. Yeah, but then I started listening to things I never listened to growing up at mm-hmm. all. Like I wasn't a punk kid. Right. But I saw all the jackets with Minor Threat and Circle Jerks sure. and Dead Kennedys on them. Man, and I started listening to that stuff today. And I liked a lot of it. Oh, it's good music. And some of it I didn't quite love. Okay, which ones? I think, you know, my deal is I like vocals and vocalists, and punk is not known for that. No. <laughs> but stuff like that had a really unique bent and it wasn't just screaming I liked a lot more. Did you? So you like the Misfits a lot? I like the Misfits. I like the Damned. Uh-huh. I like the Circle Jerks. Yeah, they're great. Did not like the Germs. I was never into the Germs. What about the Cramps? I uh, didn't listen to the Cramps yet. They're like rockabilly punk. All right, I'll probably like it. Yeah. But stuff that had a little more melody. Okay. A little more vocal styling I liked much more than the germs, which, you know, Darby Crash just just screaming things that you can hardly understand. Right. Didn't love Black Flag, what little I listened to. Like the, the Henry Rollins Black Flag? I listened to a little bit of both. Okay. But um, it's all very interesting to me, and I, d- I dig the music for sure. Yeah. It's hard not to, in some way, shape, or form, mm-hmm. like punk when you hear it. Right. Like it's 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 just too it just gets under your skin just too easily, really quickly. And yeah. You might not even realize like your like your head's like kind of nodding yeah. and your, your knees like shaking or whatever. <laughs> That's right. But like no matter who you are, punk can get to you like that. Now whether you're like I'm gonna start buying punk records and mm-hmm. like 
get a mohawk or something like that, that's that's maybe a couple steps down the road. Yeah. Most people probably wouldn't, but I think everybody can appreciate punk on some level, especially, to me, the greatest punk band of all time. And what I would argue would be the first punk band is the Ramones. Right. If you like melody and you like singing, but you also like punk, they've got everything you need. Yeah, and if you like songs that are 95 seconds long, Sure. Well, that was a big thing. Like, <laughs> punk grew out of this idea that Led Zeppelin had, like, 11-minute sure. songs they were playing on the radio, and guys like the Ramones were like, shut up. Yeah. And so they they purposefully and deliberately went the opposite way, and they started making songs that were sometimes less than a minute. Like, one of the greatest punk songs of all time, in my opinion, Circle Jerks Wasted, mm-hmm. is, like, 50, 52 seconds long. Get in, get out. It's all you need. <laughs> He gets the point across. He talks about all the drugs he's on. Right. He talks about all the stuff he does when he's on drugs, all in less than yeah. a minute. Yeah, but I think you bring up an important point, is punk was a reaction. It was a reaction to the bloated money and the bloated song lengths mm-hmm. and the arena rock, cucumber in the pants, <laughs> hard rock, machismo, uh-huh. uh, getting the ladies, like this great quote from uh, one of the Ramones. These were kids on the outside, and he said, uh, Johnny Ramone, yeah. in 1976 in Rolling Stone, said, you know, they got together because none of them could get girls. Right. So they all found solace in each other, and he said, girls always wanted to go with guys who had Corvettes, so we had nothing to do but climb on rooftops and sniff glue. <laughs> <laughs> the Ramones in a nutshell. But if you look at 1977, like the albums that came out in 1977, um, you know, you've got the Sex Pistols and the Ramones and stuff like that, mm-hmm. but... You've got Eric Clapton's Slow Hand, <laughs> Fleetwood Mac's Rumors. Okay, not bad. Point of No Return from Kansas. Okay. Uh, the Stranger from Billy Joel. Which one was that? Well, it's one of the great ones. Okay. But they all were great. Right. Uh, uh, Asia from uh, Steely Dan. Okay. And like these are like the big chart toppers. And so th- Punk came along and was just like, no, screw it's all a, that. Yeah. To heck with you guys. Yeah. That's what it says. So it was a, an ethos and a, a spirit even as much as it was music. Yeah, and I think um, one of the other things I commonly ran across in researching this was that um, it was not just kind of like rock sucks because it's getting so, you know, 11 minutes long per song and right. there's lots of guitar solos and stuff like that, but also that it was hopelessly commercialized. And so punk was like, there's nothing inherently wrong with rock. Mm-hmm. It's just gone on this path that it's been on for so long that it's it's just become, I think, like you said, bloated. Um, let's take rock back and scrape away all the all the bloat and mm-hmm. just get back to like the core and the point of it originally, which was rebellion, which yeah. is that was what punk was built on in, in the in the late seventies and. The Ramones, again, I will go to my grave saying they were officially the first punk band that ever existed. But there were there was music that, that led up to that immediately before it, and even a decade or so before it, that really laid the foundation and the groundwork for, for bands like the Ramones and the, this, the, punk that, that, um, the punk music that took off right afterward. Yeah, and uh, you also got to remember that coming into the early 70s where some of these proto-punk bands started, this was coming off of the late 60s and the hippie movement right. and Nixon and Vietnam. Which, so all that had proved a failure. Yeah, and, and flower power and the peace and love and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, there, there's still Crosby, Stills, and Nash and st- and hanging around, but there's also a younger generation that thumbed their nose, or more specifically the, their middle finger, mm-hmm. at that whole generation. Right. And that's what sort of birthed the punk movement. Right. And their proto-punk movement, at least. Right. Uh, so I saw the earliest proto-punk band I could find um, that you could trace a direct line to is actually from Peru. Okay. And they were around in 19, starting in 1964, Los Secos, mm-hmm. S-A-I-C-O-S. And if you go listen to a Los Secos song, you will, it's quite clear that this was proto-punk. Did it have the speed? A little bit, yeah. Because I think that's a bit of the distinction. Like, there was that whole... Uh, Nuggets era garage rock of the 60s. Sure. You can hear a little bit of that, but it still didn't have that chugga, chugga, chugga speed that punk rock would be known for. Yes, it did. You know? It did. Yeah, no, um, like uh, uh, another proto-punk band 
that's more garage rock, but kind of some of the sentiments they came up with, the Chocolate Watch Band. Sure, I've heard of them. Had this anthem called, like, I'm Not Like Everybody Else. Mm -hmm. And it's, like, real kind of, um, it's groovy. Mm -hmm. But if you listen to the words, it's like, this guy's talking about being a punk. Right. But it's long before punk. Yeah. But they're musically, they were not punk at all. Los Secos was punk. Like, their, their sound is definitely punk, and they were around the same time. Yeah, and the, and the specifics of what you're doing musically on a guitar with punk yeah, this is, important, is yeah. the downstroke. Yeah. So, you know, it's hard to talk about it without showing you, but if you're playing like a an Eric Clapton rhythm part, <laughs> it's like, you know, you're stroking down and up, ching, 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 ching. If you're playing punk, you're just going down, that ching, 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 ching. Nice. Uh, and that that's was sort a really, of, <laughs> really great impression. And the Ramones made a career out of two or three chords, played fast, playing that same rhythm and downstroke mm -hmm. over and over and over and over. Like again. I'm convinced you just did a two-second snippet of a Misfits <laughs> song. I could hear it like plain as day. It's great, though. I was listening to stuff today. I was like, man, I really like a lot of this, and I missed out. So I, I see myself diving into it again. Or diving in for the first time, rather. You totally should. I mean, I know about the Clash and the Ramones and stuff like that for sure, but oh, there's like, I mean, as you know, a whole world. Yeah, there out is a there. whole world. And then the thing about punk is the more like you find, oh, I like this band, and then oh, th it turns out this guy was used to be in this other band. Yeah, there was a lot of that. They're from the same scene as this other band. Uh -huh. It just keeps going and going and going. Yeah, because one of the through lines of punk is that anybody could. Be in a punk band. Yeah. It was super um, democratized, and the DIY ethos um, was was basically the, the foundation of punk music. All right. Well, let's take a break. Okay. We'll go back in time a little bit and talk about uh, New York and London, and then we'll get to that, what I think is kind of the coolest part of this whole thing is that DIY aesthetic. Okay. All right, so I mentioned London and New York. Uh, I sourced this from a bunch of articles. can't remember if this was the Pitchfork one or not, but the headline of this part is A Tale of Two Cities, uh, New York and L.A. Uh, I'm sorry, New York and London. Right. But uh, L.A. would come along a bit later w with its own scene. And also London gets mentioned here at the expense of Manchester, which I would say is like right. that's ground zero next to New York. Right. Also ground zero uh, which doesn't get nearly enough press, is Australia. Oh, yeah? These things were going on in parallel all over the world. That's really interesting to think, like, this stuff is happening, yeah. like, almost independently I of know. one another. It was, because it's not like someone in Australia heard someone on the Internet right. in 1974. Right. But there were a couple of bands, one called Cheap Nasties on the Western, I think in Perth, and then The Saints, probably the biggest punk band to come out of Australia. Mm -hmm. This was at the same time that CBGB's... Uh, and the Stooges were, like, getting big. It's crazy. Yeah, so the Stooges would technically qualify as proto-punk, too. Right. But they came from Michigan, along with MC5. Right. And Death. Death is an even earlier proto-punk band than the Stooges. Yeah, that, that documentary is great. It, it, I, I actually haven't seen that one. Yeah, there's one on Death. It's just called, like, a band called Death, right? Yep. Yeah, it's very, like, they're amazing. Yeah. And they were, um, I think, three, three African-American brothers from Detroit. Just killing it. Who, in 1971, formed, yeah. like, a punk band. Yeah. Yeah. And this is before the Stooges. I think this is before MC5. Before Bad Brains, that's so, for sure. For sure. Um, so all of these bands are starting to kind of lay the groundwork. And then it's almost like it just kind of ignites, like we're saying, in different parts of the world, all, virtually at the same time. Yeah. Which I just find endlessly fascinating. Yeah, and I think that's what really lends a lot of credence to the fact that it was a movement. Mm -hmm. It was a feeling people were rebelling against more than anything. Right. Uh, which can happen parallel in different parts of the country and world, you know? If there's anything that can bring the whole world together, it's disdain for hippies. <laughs> you know? They really bring that out in everybody. Did you see the Tarantino movie yet? Once Upon a Time yeah. in Hollywood? Oh, Yes. There's a lot of the anti-hippie stuff yeah. in there that was pretty funny. Yeah, a little. <laughs> Some of them are beaten to death, literally. Well, I just mean all the DiCaprio stuff was really funny. How right, much he right, hated, yeah. hated the hippies. I know. <laughs> but, but Tarantino really, like, pointed out, like, you know, the Manson family's been celebrated and yeah. in, in romanticized at least in some weird ways. Yeah. Um, and they should not be. And yeah. this is why. I think he did a really good job of doing that. Uh, so... 
Sorry. We were talking about the Stooges and MC5 in Michigan. Uh, in New York City is where things really crystallized with the club CBGB uh, owned by uh, Hilly Crystal. Crystal? No, crystal? just Crystal. Is it Crystal? I think so. Like Billy Crystal? Right, by Hilly. <laughs> uh, and originally, you know, that stands for Country Blue, Gra- Blue Grass and Blues. Right. And that was what it was supposed to be when it opened in 1973. Yeah, but then in about two years, the Ramones started playing there. Talking Heads started playing there in 1975. Blondie. Um, television, I think. I love like, television. Television, I'm okay with them. Like, I'm, I don't love them. They don't, I don't hate them. But um, they were... They were essential to that scene happening, for yeah. sure. Um, and a lot of people kind of overlook them, I think, as like one of the the foundation bands for punk. Yeah, which is, int- like I mentioned earlier, like it's such different kinds of music. Like I love Talking Heads and Television mm-hmm. and Blondie mm-hmm. and the Go-Go's, and they were all in that early scene, but I don't think it's that's anything like the Misfits or the Damned no. or the Ramones. No, but the Misfits... Uh, and the Ramones both started their careers at CBGB. Yeah. So it was like the place where punk began in the United States. Yeah. Uh, also at Max's Kansas, uh, Kansas City in New York, legendary club. Uh, this is where like Patti Smith is hanging out. The Velvet Underground is hanging out. Mm-hmm. Again, they're not punk at all, but they were in that scene. Right. And one thing that we're kind of not really mentioning that is a common thread to all these bands, not necessarily music, but heroin was a huge thread. Yeah. They, they shared their deep, deep, deep love of heroin um, in common, and that definitely bound them uh, together at CBGB for sure. And that was a huge factor on the early punk scene was heroin. That's right. Which, I mean, this is, you know, if you remember back just a few years ago before OxyContin turned everybody into junkies in the world. Um, heroin was not a big drug at all. Yeah. And back then, especially, it was like you were a total burnout if you were doing heroin. Like sure. it was not done. Yeah. So the fact that these people were like shooting heroin like in the clubs, that was a that was a, a, a another kind of badge that they took on. Yeah. Um, that separated them from everybody else. Yeah. You know, even their preference of drugs was super hardcore. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Uh, another interesting hap- uh, thing happened early on in 1977 when these two scenes sort of exported one of their um, early uh, big bands to play in the other city. Mm-hmm. Uh, in 1977, The Damned uh, played in the United States, and less than a year before that, the Ramones had gone to the U.K. to play shows in London. And that was a big deal because sure. all of a sudden you had these two different scenes Swapping bands, of course, it wasn't anything they planned, but they got a taste of New York City and London with the Ramones in a big, big way. Right. And the same can be said in New York City with the Damned, very British. And then a month before the Ramones played uh, in London, in Manchester, on June 4th, 1976, the, the Sex Pistols had their first show. And a lot of people point to this as this is when UK punk happened. Right. It was this one show at the... Um, Lesser Free Trade Hall, which is like a hall, Mm -hmm. might as well be a VFW basically. And that's where the Sex Pistols had their first show. But some of the people who were there were so influential, including a 17-year-old Morrissey who went to cover the thing for New Music Express. Oh, wow. um, That that it just spread out like a a germ. Like it was the single point that Mm -hmm. that UK punk spread out from. Yeah. And this was uh, June of 1976. And within six months, the major record labels were lining up to yeah. sign any and every punk act they could get their hands on. Six months. like that's So not only did it spread and, and grow in parallel around the world at the same time, yeah. when it hit the scene, it's hard to overstate mm-hmm. how quickly it just blew up. Yeah. Like just from nothing to it in yeah. l- l- six months. Yeah, I mean, if there's one thing, I mean, I don't, I don't know about the music industry today, but previous to, you know, digital content, mm-hmm. the music industry was always there waiting to commodify the next big thing. Yeah, and they did it to punk big time. Yeah. So let's talk about this DIY thing for a little bit. It was really cool, this article about these um, these DIY origins in punk music. Uh, what happened was when punk started coming around in the mid-1970s, this coincided with a big shift 
in uh, equipment and recording gear and modernizing recording gear. Among like the big labels. Yeah, sure. Um, and so all of a sudden there was all of this, these rooms and this gear that you could either rent cheap or buy cheap. Yeah, they're old stuff that they didn't need anymore. Yeah, and so the punks came along and uh, started using it. And the very first punk labels were self-started. Miles Copeland started Step Forward. Uh, Bob Last started Fast Product. And, of course, very famously, Tony Wilson started Factory Records. Yes, dude, which, by the way, see 24-hour party yeah. people if you never have, everybody. It's amazing. Yeah, I need but, to see that again. I saw it once when it came out. Yeah, it's a good movie. Yeah. Um, but it follows this progression of punk into new wave uh, into the 80s. Um, it, it just does it in a spectacularly great way because it's yeah. Steve Coogan who's great at everything. Oh, he's so good. Yeah. Uh, but people trace the... Um, punk on record, or on recorded tape, rather, right? to the very first single, they claim, very first punk single, November 76, The Dam's uh, New Rose. Which I thought that was weird because the Ramones released their album before them, but maybe because the Ramones were on a label when they released their album, they're saying, like, this is the first DIY punk Maybe. Release. When was the Ramones' uh, first album? I think, like, the full year before. 75? I'm pretty sure. Oh, wow. If not, at least 76 then, but I'm pretty sure 75. Well, the Buzzcocks uh, put out an EP, and I listened to a lot of that today. I, I enjoyed that. Yeah, it's good. Um, Spiral Scratch was this EP. Uh, was apparently the first British homemade record, and that was a really big deal. Uh, this was in 1977. They sold out 1,000 copies that they printed. Then they went on to sell another 16,000, and um, the influence on Spiral Scratch really spread out and told everyone because they printed it was very cool they printed on the the little record jacket mm -hmm. like how much it cost how they produced it and what the money was all about for 153 pounds basically saying go do this right like and here's how to do it yeah um they all, all like that kind of set the tone for other records like other punk bands released their own records also included instructions on the the sleeve that the record came in um and the whole DIY record release thing that the Buzzcocks kicked off, um, other people started to find other ways to mm -hmm. to kind of make it so punk could exist outside of the influence of the record companies. Yeah. Like people would release records in Ziploc baggies. Mm -hmm. Like that was the record sleeve that your record came in. And people yeah. loved it. Like you didn't you didn't need like this expensive sleeve for the thing to come in. Like you could just pop it in a for, in a Ziploc bag and sell it. It's very punk. It's super <laughs> punk. And then also um if, if you can form a band. Mm -hmm. the, it was put like this like the Sex Pistols showed that Anybody could be in a punk band. Yeah, you didn't even need to be very talented. Right. You didn't even need to know how to play an instrument. Yeah. Um, and you could be in a punk band. And the um, the Buzzcocks came along and showed that anybody could press a record. But there was still one very essential ingredient missing, and that was distribution. Yeah. And like you said, mail order made up for a lot of the Buzzcocks EP um, sales, but they they realized that there were more people out there who wanted this stuff but didn't have a way to get to it so a a what was called the cartel was formed yeah. which is a group of independent record stores around the UK that would basically serve as a distribution network for these DIY punk records it's so cool it is um not only that but uh zines uh, were very important early on in mm -hmm. the punk and really kind of a lot of music genres zines were really big which are these, you know, fan-made magazines. Yeah, made with, like, photocopy. Yeah. Not even photocopy, like, mimeograph stuff. Yep, and you would just print out your zine, and some of these zines got to be pretty big, and they would attach distribution to these zines sometimes and sneak 45s, not sneak them, but uh, pack a 45 in the zine. Right. And that's how you could release your stuff. Yeah. And it was just this, uh, again, it sounds so trite to say very punk rock attitude, but that's exactly what it was. The way yeah. they were doing things was all under the radar, all on their own, uh, and that changed pretty quickly. It did. It's because the um, the big the big players came in. Yeah, they smelled money. They smelled something new, the next big thing, and they started signing everybody they could left and right. And like, these punks were going like, "No bollocks! I don't want your money." They're like, "What if we pay you in heroin?" <laughs> they said, "Oh, okay, yeah, I like it. no, they're you like, put it that way. You could buy drugs with money, <laughs> right?" So. Um, Again, within six months of what 
most people point to as the source of UK punk, that one specific show by the Sex Pistols. Mm -hmm. The Sex Pistols were so new, Sid Vicious wasn't even in the band. He was still Susie and the Banshees drummer. So this is how young this stuff was. Within six months, they were signed on to a major record label. The Clash was signed on to a major record label. The Fall, The Jam, The Stranglers, everybody got signed in this feeding frenzy where everyone who had a punk band could get a a record deal with a major label six months after the Sex Pistols had their first show. Yeah, Generation X with a young Billy Idol. Yeah. Uh, which I never knew that Dancing With Myself was originally a Generation X song. I didn't know that either. Uh, they released it, then he re-released it as a solo artist like a year later. Wow. And it became a much bigger hit. Yeah. I'm sure they were like, thanks a lot. Uh, but yeah, Sex Pistols <laughs> went with EMI, um, The Stranglers at UA. Uh, the Clash signed to CBS. The Jam went to Polydor. Yeah. Generation X and Stiff Little Fingers went to Chrysalis. And even the Buzzcocks. Yeah. They were very quick to hop on that train, too, with United Artists. Which, actually, that's not too bad. You could have signed with worse because United Artists was started uh, by Mary Pickford, Douglas Fairbanks, um, Charlie Chaplin, and D.W. Griffith so that artists could have more control and ownership over their work. Yeah, I mean, it was a movie company, and I guess they dabbled in records. Yeah. So one of three things happened, basically, to the little DIY small label movement. Um, you either got pilfered, uh, they use one example, in Belfast, the Good Vibrations label, four of its first six bands were stolen away right. or signed away, I guess. Yeah. So you either got pilfered and then just shut down and gave up, um, or you grew and got bigger to where you were, you know, like Rough Trade and uh, Factory Records. Those all became like bigger independent labels. Yeah, Rough Trade's still around. I checked. Sure. They have state-of-the-art cutting-edge oh, bands yeah, it's right it's great. Now. Um, or they uh, stayed small and just kept going. Right. They went punk and went back underground. Yeah. Like, so they didn't all go away. They right. didn't all say, you know, we're all getting pilfered, so we're just going to shut down. Right. They would just find more underground bands and go deeper and deeper and deeper. But then um, something happened in 1979, February of 1979, that a lot of people point to, just as they point to that first Sex Pistols show as the beginning of punk in the U.K., they point to the death of Sid Vicious as the end of punk, at least the first wave of punk. Mm-hmm. His death uh, from a heroin overdose um, is widely pointed to as as the death of punk, yeah. which is a really dumb thing to say because punk very clearly went on. Mm-hmm. But what I think people are saying, sorry, I guess it's not entirely dumb now that I say it out loud. <laughs> but what people are saying is, is that punk transformed into something else and that punk really... As, as it originally existed, was only around for about two, three years. Yeah. Maybe four or five of you. I'm sure there are some like people should. at a bar right now that are just saying that over and over again. Right. Punk okay. only lasted three years. Okay. Well, I agree with you, drunk person, <laughs> in this sense. But it's not like punk went away. It transformed and became something else. And so what it transitioned into is commonly called hardcore, hardcore punk, where stuff just got faster Louder, mm-hmm. a little angrier. Yeah. Um, and it just went in, in a, a different direction, predominantly in the United States. Yeah, and there were, there were a couple of scenes. Um, the L.A. scene had already sort of been born by the late 70s. Uh, if, if you haven't seen it, the great documentary from Penelope Spheris, The Decline of Western Civilization. That's so good. Uh, released in 81, but filmed over, I think, 78, 79, and 80 maybe. Covered the L.A. scene, and that's the germs and, uh, like, I think Blondie and the Go-Go's and stuff like that. All right, and and Circle was, Jerks have, like, one Blondie of New York. the best sets ever in the decline of Western civilization. Yes. It's very good. And the germs, too. That's where I was I was watching some of that today, and that's when I knew I didn't like the germs. Right. <laughs> but Pat Smear, of course, the Foo Fighters, he mm-hmm. was in the germs. You know— um, So he liked money. And also, if you're like, who's Penelope Spheris? You may be familiar with her work if you've seen the movie Wayne's World. That's right. Or the movie Black Sheep, the Chris Farley, David Spade movie. (laughs) Or The Decline of Western Civilization. I think she ended up doing like three or four of those, right? At least three. Because I know she did one on metal. The second one was metal. Which is good, too. Yeah. (laughs) Those are the only two I saw. Did you ever see that documentary about... um, Heavy Metal Parking Lot? Yes. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> Where everybody's smoking PCP at a Judas Priest concert? Yeah, it's pretty great. Did you know early 80s metalheads smoked PCP? No. I didn't until that documentary. 
Because it was quite a surprise. No, I, I, I was scared of all those people. Well, they were kind of scary because they were all on PCP, yeah, especially <laughs> when you're like 8 or 10. They're very scary. So American, uh, we were talking about the you know punk bands releasing their own albums. This started happening on the West Coast. Um, they started forming their own labels even to uh, release their albums and sign other like bands. Right. Like SST, very f- famous uh, punk label, was started from uh, the guy, the original guy from Black Flag, right? Yes. Uh What's his name? Greg, G-I-N-N, either Gin or Jin. Jigin. I'm sorry, punkers. I know you're mad at me right Gin. now that I don't know this. <laughs> yeah, I think he was like the founder of Black Flag. Okay. Uh, Jello Biafra, of course, um, of From, the Dead Kennedys. Right. They formed, or he formed, Alternative Tentacles. With East Bay Ray. Yeah, in 1979. And 79 was a big year because that's the same year that a band called uh, Bad Brains came out. In Washington D.C., which uh, I, I didn't love. Did you see the Dave Grohl documentary series? No. So I can't remember what it was called, but he did this like ten-part documentary series where he would do the the music of a different city, uh-huh. and it was really really good. Except for the last like fifteen minutes of it, he would get the Foo Fighters together in a studio and they would play like some of those songs. And if you're really into the Foo Fighters, I imagine you loved it all. Okay. Not into the Foo Fighters. Right. So I would just stop it there. But he does <laughs> Seattle. Uh, but the, what got me on this was one of the most interesting episodes was the Washington, D.C. episode. Sure. Because I didn't know it was such a hardcore scene. Like that's where when people talk about hardcore, yeah. they're like, well, D.C. is kind of the cradle of it. And Bad Brains, which my friend uh, Jason Jenkins in college introduced me to. Mm-hmm. And that's when it was like really fast. Had a little metal edge, mm-hmm. but Bad Brains was also started out as like jazz fusion and had reggae roots. Right. Also African-American guys. Four of them, yeah. Yeah, and um, really, really good stuff. Yeah, so you've got at the same time L.A. and D.C. as the new like seats of punk music in the U.S. Yeah, punk slash hardcore. And it's going, it's going like way more hardcore, way more masculine, way more macho than the U.K. went. The U.K. went a different route. They went way more political, way more like class struggle. Um, and there's there's definitely lots of political threads that um, American punk music went through. But I think the U.K. went to it earlier. Like Crass is a great, great punk band from the U.K. Yeah. Um, they're kind of like uh, – they're just great. Check them out. Um, but – they were doing, like, anarchy stuff in the 70s. Yeah, The Clash certainly <clears throat> is notable for their political statement. Very political. Um, and then you've got, like, the six Sex Pistols talking about anarchy in the UK. They mm. didn't really mean it. They were just saying something, right? Right. Um, but there were a lot of, like, politically motivated bands in the UK in the early 70s. That didn't pick up till later in the 80s in mm-hmm. the US. Yeah, because the Ramones certainly were not political. They were not political. Yeah. But the other thing, the other differentiation I saw between UK and U.S. U.S. punk was that U.K. punk didn't take itself quite as seriously as the U.S. started to in mm-hmm. the late 70s, early 80s. And that the, this guy I read, a, I think a Guardian article, traced that back to a love of glam rock. Mm. That glam rock really led to punk, especially in the U.K. And if you're into glam rock, you just can't quite take anything fully seriously, yeah. including punk music. And the, the U.S., even though uh, punk came out of the New York Dolls, in part, mm-hmm. um, and, which was definitely glam rock, um, it just didn't have that that through thread. Right. So it did get taken way more seriously, and that was a big part of hardcore and what differentiated it from the earlier punk, taking things really, really seriously yeah. and it being a little more political than ever before and um, angsty against things like the boredom of suburban life. Yeah, I mean, I think punk is just as important for things that it uh – inspired that happened afterward Mm -hmm. as it was the actual movement itself. Because you can point to stuff in Minneapolis like Husker Du or bands like the Minutemen, who I loved, and they had a very punk sound to them and maybe are even considered punk? Probably post-punk. Post-punk. I think Minutemen are considered punk, but Husker Du would definitely be post-punk for sure. And stuff like Sonic Youth, which... I would call them post-punk, too. Post-punk, straddling into the early grunge, though, too. Well, yeah. 
I mean, it's like it's same. hard to, it's easy sometimes to trace that through line yeah. and sometimes it's really difficult. But we want to, we want to be able to say like, I know, um, right? you know, it went from, uh, um, from bad brains to Husker du, right. to Sonic Youth to Nirvana. There. Right. You know, four degrees of Nirvana or And Green Day's in there going, what about us? Right, exactly. <laughs> um, but you just, you can't, but at the same time, you also can't discount the effects that these later bands, um, got from the early, listening to the earlier bands that came before him. Like, yeah. there's undoubtedly an influence. Sure. It's just not quite as crisp and clean as as we like to make it. Yeah, and it's even ar- argued in one of these articles that the um, the birth of hardcore came about because, like you kind of teased earlier on, mm-hmm. because punk, you know, flouts the, the rules and norms of rock and roll, then they form their own rules and norms. Right. And were really pretty serious about it. Right. And so hardcore came along because they didn't quite fit in with that the true punk aesthetic. Right. They took punk even further because punk was being commodified and commercialized otherwise. That's right. Which would make it kind of easier to break from, especially if you just go slightly angrier and faster and louder. Right. But you also can look at stuff like uh, you talk about tracing the through line. Um, if you want to think about early Manchester and stuff like Joy Division— mm-hmm that goes to New Order, that goes to orchestral maneuvers in the dark and simple minds, and all of a sudden it's a John Hughes soundtrack. Sure. And it's, hard, it's then it's like, what is punk about anything? Right. And that like sort of softer new wave. But at the same time, you can also say, well, New Order was just straight up new wave. But then right. new wave caught on and got commercialized and commodified, and then you end up having a John Hughes soundtrack because the record labels got a hold of the new wave band. Right. right? So... The, that's kind of like the the story with music is somebody comes up with something raw and organic and rebellious. Yeah. Everybody loves it. The big guys come along, get their hands on it, co-opt it, commodify it, commercialize it, ruin it. Yeah. And then some thread kind of jumps off of that and it yeah. starts something else. And the whole thing always, it just continues on and continues on, except until the mid-2000s when music died forever <laughs> and ever and ever. All right, well, let's take another break here, and we'll talk a little bit about the the end of punk, and uh, but before that, maybe we'll hit on the fashion of punk. Oh, boy. Okay, Chuck. Um, we're talking fashion of punk? Yeah. So every mu- every genre has its own look. I, w- I cannot remember what it had to have been the safety pin short stuff where we talked about Richard Hell being uh, considered the guy who started the the safety pin as a fashion statement. I think so. I'm pretty sure, but it was Richard Hell. He was the guitarist for television. Yeah, yeah. And he was like the first guy with the mohawk, like the Elmer's glue kind of mohawk, uh-huh. and safety pins holding his shirt together. Yeah. Which is, I mean, that's quintessential punk. But at the same time, dressing like a Ramon is quintessential punk too, with like the je- jeans with the knees yeah. in it. Black jeans, Doc Martens, or Converse low tops. Yeah, or Converse high tops. Sure. Uh, Black biker jacket. Yeah, the New York Dolls were very famous for wearing the jean jackets, super super small. Uh, it jokes in this article that they could barely fit in them. Right. They also wore super tight. Lycra, shiny pants and stuff, too. Yeah, but they were glam. Right. But that, it was really those black ripped jeans. Uh, and this was a time where that wasn't, like, the cool thing to wear. If you you didn't walk around with holes in your, and, you know, now it's become a recurring thing in fashion to have holes in your jeans being cool. Right. At the time, it was not cool. It meant that you were poor. Exactly, man. It, this was like somebody in this article, I think from Pitchfork, said, you know, Didi Ramon had uh, um, holes in the knees of his jeans, not because it was cool, but because he didn't have any money for some new jeans, and those <laughs> his jeans just had holes in them, so that's what he wore. Now you pay like hundred or two hundred bucks for jeans that have pre-ripped holes that are just right. Yeah, that's a perfect example of the commoditization of punk. Yeah, for sure. Uh, other, you know, in LA they have their own fashion scene going on because. It's L.A., and they don't have harsh winters and cold, rainy weather. Mm-hmm. So they went to the thrift stores and bought things and cut them up 
And that's where you you never saw a, a, a shirt on a punk in the L.A. scene that didn't have, like, the neck cut out or the sleeves cut off. Mm-hmm. Or uh, in the case of the Go-Go's in their earlier punk days wearing, uh, like, literal trash bags as fashion. Very funny. And Blondie, too. Sure. They all had a very, like, specific aesthetic in Los Angeles. Yeah. It's interesting that the Go-Go's started out in the punk scene uh, when they were, I think, to the casual uh, music fan, mm-hmm. known very much for just sort of a bubblegum sure. sing-along pop hits that they had. Just lovable as all get out. As all get out. Great songs. And Belinda Carlisle, too. Like, her solo stuff is... Yeah? Just kiss everybody. <laughs> you couldn't see that, but that's what I gave. But it's that whole pop-punk thing, which is uh, kind of where it started to go bad. You could make the case that it's starting in the beginning of 1977, when all those first record labels came in, it started to go bad then. But hardcore... Here's this is where I this is my reading of this, okay. Mm -hmm. And I'm not a punk or even music historian by any stretch of the imagination, but from what I gathered from this research, Mm -hmm. is that early punk got co opted and commodified by the record labels immediately. Mm -hmm. Hardcore grew out of that. Hardcore is way harder to commodify because it's much more raw, it's much less melodic, it's much more in your face and angry than original punk was. And it's also jealously guarded and defended Mm -hmm. by the fans, Mm -hmm. where at the beginning of the show, we were saying, please don't beat us up. Like, if you go to a hardcore show and they think you're a poser, like, you may get beaten up if this is the 80s or the 90s. I don't know if they still do it today. I remember feeling that threat not not upon me, but, like, the the punks at the school, like— you didn't want to cross them. It was part of being a punk. Yeah. Was like you beat somebody up to basically defend punkdom, right. to keep it from getting commodified. <laughs> yeah. Like like square, get seeing, away from me. Seeing kids like wear Thrasher T-shirts today, and they have no idea what Thrasher is. Yeah. Like it's like if you did that with punk in the eighties and nineties, you would get beaten up. Maybe yeah. even at school. Definitely at a punk show. Mm-hmm. And so in doing so, they were able to defend hardcore from commoditization because they kept it their own violently. Right. But at the same time, they also, it's kind of like how a language evolves the more people speak it. Right. And the more free and, and easy it, it, the, the rules on it are by, in, by putting these very tight restrictions on what's punk and what's not punk and yeah. who's allowed to come to a punk show, yeah. which is super ironic for punks to do, to come up with all these rules and regulations. Right. They kept it from evolving. Yeah. They definitely kept it underground, yep. and it's still around today, but it's the same thing over and over again because yeah. it wasn't allowed to grow and evolve because yep. the fans have kept it, at least in America, have kept it underground uh, purposely, deliberately, and violently. Yeah. So punks killed punk. Kind of. They would argue, no, punk's still around. I go see punk shows all the time and right. don't come to it because you're a poser and we'll beat right. you up. So they're still <laughs> punk. But as far as like you and I walking around are concerned punk is dead as a doornail for now yeah for now well i mean i remember when we did our uk tour i remember seeing a group of punks in manchester (laughs) that looked like they stepped right out of 1981 yeah with the full spiked mohawks Mm -hmm. and the leather studded leather collars and uh i was scared of them then were you (laughs) a little bit you're like those are bad kids they're gonna try to get me to smoke i'm in town to do a podcast (laughs) right What's funny is is that fashion that you're talking about, that mm-hmm. quintessential punk fashion, yeah. that was a commodification immediately too. The Sex Pistols manager used to be the manager of the New York Dolls, yeah. uh, Malcolm McLaren, and he owned a shop, kind of BDSM um, fashion shop right. with Vivian Westwood mm-hmm. in London. And he basically used the Sex Pistols to promote the fashion he was selling at his shop to yeah. make it fashionable so he could sell more clothes. Yeah. This is the manager of the first UK punk band ever. Well, and he had put them together, right? It's not like essentially the Sex Pistols all got together because they were mates. Like, they were formed by a manager. Yes, by this guy, Malcolm McLaren. They were the monkeys. Kind of. They were the monkeys <laughs> of punk. They were the punkies. So many people are mad at us right now. For sure, but it's true. I mean, go look up your history if These you're mad. punks are going to beat us up next time we go on tour. Some some 13-year-old just looked down at their shirt and went, that's what the Sex Pistols are. I had no idea. Well, it's funny, though, that you talk about the the pins and the it, it was all homemade stuff. Like I remember it being a very I mean I was certainly way too square, but I remember seeing the punks in my school doing 
stuff to their clothes during class and at lunch right. and thinking it was the coolest thing. Oh, Whether yeah. it was Black Magic, Black Sharpie mm-hmm. doing the Dead Kennedys or the Anarchy symbol. Right. Well, the Dead Kennedys did have the coolest symbol around. That was pretty cool. Yeah. Or just fraying their, uh, fraying their jackets or adding safety pins. It was, all, it, it was all created out of that homemade aesthetic. Right. Sort of like the music. And it, and it appealed to me, but I was afraid of it. And now I'm, that's why I'm just now starting to listen to some of this music. Are you going to turn all punk now? Maybe. Okay. That would be <laughs> one of the bigger surprises you've ever laid on me, man. But uh, pop punk we should talk a little bit about. Um, they call it bittersweet in this article. Um, sweet in the sense that you could get tons of money and be super famous. But bitter because it, you know, it spawned a genre that I think a lot of true punks really loathe. Like, I think true punks like a square more than they like a Blink-182 fan. Indubitably. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Uh, and that, you know, that whole scene, the Vans Warp Tour and Rancid and Offspring and Green Day and all these groups was a part of a big second wave of these kids who grew up definitely listening to that stuff. And I guess feeling like they were a part of it. I mean, I'm sure Green Day really feels like they're a punk band and part of a punk movement. <clears throat> Whereas I remember the first time I heard Green Day thinking, these are guys pretending to be a punk band. Yeah. Which no, is a really cruddy thing to say. But I mean, it is, it, like, it's totally understandable how you would think that. But they, they are, I mean, it is punk in some way, shape, or form. It's punk. The stuff they're talking about is pretty punk. Um, but punk bands don't release acoustic songs talking well, about the time of their life. Definitely not. No, it's um, used on the like first, sitcoms. The first album, <laughs> okay, Dookie, right, is what we're talking about. Uh, I guess was that the first one? I think so. I just remember hearing it and going like, "Why is that guy trying to sound British?" Well, well that's that pretty first, punk, actually. That first big hit <laughs> is it? very punk. Yeah, <laughs> for sure. An American kid trying to sound British. Well, I guess so. Um, but yeah, I don't. I, I would guess you're right, though. They're that, on Broadway. That punks, for God's sake. Well, yeah, there was a brief shining moment where you could have conceivably called them a punk band. Here's the thing, though, man. People like money. Yeah, it, but that's been a through, not just in, yeah. the, in the punk scene, but but uh, it, just in music in general. Although hats off to the punk culture for keeping it at bay better than anybody ever has, any bet, other genre. I would like to hear, I'm sure there are people listening that know of punk bands that did stick their middle finger up to the money mm-hmm. and say, nope. I can tell you one, Fugazi. Uh, well, I love Fugazi. So Fugazi's Post-punk. out of D.C. Or I guess hardcore. Hardcore. Yeah. Um, and they, I think they formed Discord Records. Yeah. If not, they're a big a- act on Discord Records. And they um, have done this whole DIY thing, like, from the get-go. Yeah. They've, they've eschewed the major labels, as far as I know, their whole career, and they were extremely successful despite that. Yeah. I saw them in Athens once. Oh, yeah? Yep. What'd you think? That was great. This is, you know, good. I think they got together in the, like, 87-ish, and this was more like 92. Okay. But, well, they were still huge in 92. Oh, yeah. Probably bigger. That was when they were at their height, I would guess, is 92. Yeah, I mean, technically they had a, I don't know about how it performed on the literal charts, but they had that one song that had a big MTV hit. Waiting Room? Yeah. It's a good song. It's a really good song. Yeah. <laughs> Um, so I just want to give some shouts out okay. for anybody who's like, this is really interesting. I want to know more. Mm-hmm. Go listen to The Cramps. I would um, recommend The Cramps. Listen to Crass. Go watch The Decline of Western Civilization. Definitely check out The Circle Jerks. Um, who else, Chuck? I'm going to say the for my picks, the Bad Brains and The Damned. Okay. For sure. I'm going to toss Gigi Allen out there. Ooh, yeah. Although he kind of transcends... Yeah, everything. Just punk. <laughs> and Yumi was sending me some, um, I didn't catch any of the names, but she said there's a big punk scene in Japan still. And that was another thing, too, is somebody said punk's not dying. It's just coming up in other places. Right. Like um, in Islamic countries, there's a big punk movement. I saw Mexico's got a big one right now. Apparently Japan has Ooh. it. And then there's that the Mexican whole punk is good. riot girl feminist punk. Yeah. That is, man, if that's not punk, I don't know what like it Eastern is. Like Eastern Bloc uh, mm-hmm. punk riot girls. Right. I love it. Yeah. So punk is still alive. Punk not dead. Punk no dead. Punk's not dead. Okay. Uh, If you want to know more about punk music, go listen to that stuff we just told you to go listen to. And uh, since I said that, it's time for Listener Mail. If you want to learn more about punk music, you can probably go to literally any other place other than this episode and learn more about punk music. If you want to know more about (laughs) punk music, go to your local library and read up. 
It's fundamental. Uh, all right, guys. I'm going to call this uh, poop. No, no poop. Okay. Uh, on that short stuff about the guy who didn't eat for a year, uh, we talked about the fact that he didn't poop that much. Mm-hmm. And she said, this is the norm for people with a colostomy or ileostomy. I had a temporary ileostomy, an ostomy connected to the ileum instead of the colon due to Crohn's complications. My colon was completely severed from the rest of my digestive system during this time and basically sat dormant while food exited into an ostomy pouch. Uh, No food means no poop, but the body still produces the normal gut stuff like mucus and cells and needs to evacuate on occasion, Mm -hmm. which I think that's what we talked about. Uh, For people with years of bowel issues, such as pain and running to the bathroom every 30 minutes, this can be a literal lifesaver. Anyway, my colon is currently now reattached to the rest of my intestine, and my Crohn's is in remission. I had no idea. So this person had a colostomy, Mm -hmm. and it was reversed. Yes. That's, I had no idea they could do that. Yeah, we should do something on Crohn's. Sure. And just tie all this stuff together. Okay. Uh, just wanted to give you a little perspective on the topic. Um, actually, ostomies would be an interesting topic for you to tackle. For sure. Thanks for doing the best podcast around. According to my podcast app, I've listened to over 400 episodes. Yikes. Well, Sonia in Canada, you have another, what, 750, 800? What are we up to now? What? Number of episodes. 850? We're up to like 1,200. Well, she's listened to 400. Oh, okay. So just do a little math. <laughs> oh, wait. Okay, hold on. I can do this. So another like 800 or so? Yeah, I would say so. All right. Well, you're a, a third of the way there. You have, keep at it. Yeah, roughly. Yeah. You got it a third. And you guys should have just seen Chuck like look up into the air from the side of his eye. She said, uh, we'd love to see you uh, to the come out to the prairie provinces. So nah. I know in Canada we do Toronto and Vancouver, but... There's a lot of country in the middle there that we should probably go to at some point. In the U.S., we call them flyover states. Well, in Canada, they call it prairie country. <laughs> right. Well, uh, if you want to get in touch with us like did. Sonia. Thanks again, Sonia. Um, you can go on to StuffYouShouldKnow.com and check out our social links. And you can also send us an email to StuffPodcast at iHeartRadio.com. Stuff You Should Know is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.